This is the second sermon in our three-week sermon series that we're getting in between Jeremiah and Mark. And uh, the mission of the church, last week, I hope you were here, uh, Frank Wong talked about the actual mission of the church and the classic Great Commission, Matthew 28, and Ephesians 4, equipping the saints passages. Uh, Next week, Dr. Dave will be talking about the upward mission of the church. This morning, you'll notice the title is the outward mission of the church. How many of you grew up in church and got to participate in lots of activities. I did. If you didn't, fabulous. I'm glad you found your way. Uh, But many of us have great memories from childhood. Um, I loved going to church. Still do. Uh, But especially as a kid, my dad was a pastor, and I had lots of great teachers, great leaders, youth leaders. Uh, I made a lot of friends. I I, I realized I came alive so much more at church than I did at school. And I remember as a young kid, I would look around and like some of my neighbors didn't go to church. And I was like asking my parents, why don't they go, right? I mean, church is like the greatest thing. It's so much better than school. I mean, it's not as good as maybe football on the street, but I mean, church is pretty cool. And kind of in the naivete of my youth, I thought everybody would love it here, right? Because they love me, and, and God loves me, and why wouldn't everyone come? And it wouldn't be long before I became very aware that not only do people have bad experiences at church, they often don't feel welcome. They don't feel loved. Uh, they even if sometimes don't even feel the inclination Why would you go to church? Why would you connect spiritually with other people? I've heard recently that a huge percentage of America, maybe as much as 80%, is never coming inside a church building unless it's a life stage event, wedding, baptism, funeral, uh, where it would be kind of rude not to come. And this is despite the fact that over two-thirds of Americans say they're Christians. So do the math, 20% come, 60 to 70% claim to be, but they're not, most of them aren't coming. You can fill in all the reasons, we don't have a lot of time for that, the church is irrelevant, boring, stands against progress, just wants your money, Uh, you know, all those things. But the fact is they're not coming, they never will connect with what we see and know as this beautiful but messy community of sinners who are saved by grace and trying to live like a family. Uh, I don't know if your church had a lot of outreach events. Different churches I went to had these cool outreach events. You know, we would have a fall festival in the parking lot and invite the community, and, and we would do concerts in the fellowship hall and lots of stuff like that. And that kind that worked, you know, at times, and it still kind of works. But a lot of churches are finding that it doesn't, calling them to come in. Uh, so some churches double down. They, you know, they 
put a lot more money into it, make it better, stronger, flashier, edgier, whatever. Uh, other churches abandon it. And I would say that those things worked when we lived in what we called Christendom, where the culture respected and lived generally with Judeo-Christian values. That's what we would call that sort of time. I don't, I'm not going to give it dates, but you understand the Christendom. Well, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. We are not in Christendom anymore. We don't live in Christendom, even if there are some small towns or pockets of America where it feels like we still are. We live in a post-Christian world. Stuart Murray, a pastor, author, tells the story of a teen who heard the Christmas story for the first time and really enjoyed it, but was kind of disturbed by one of the elements so he asked the person who read it, why did they name the main character after a swear word? Jesus. Tells another story about a man who was coming to his church to pick up some materials for a creative arts project. And somehow he was told there were materials at the church. He was coming to get them, and he walked in, and all these people were there. He, what are all these people? I didn't know churches were open on Sundays. Biblical knowledge, biblical worldview, framework cannot be assumed. No matter how relevant and powerful our messages are, no matter how either cutting edge or traditional or excellent or whatever adjective you want to use for the music, the worship, Sunday mornings, Bible study, fellowship, all of those things, there are a huge number of people that will never come. They won't even notice so if people aren't going to come to us, I wonder how they will ever hear the gospel. As Paul asks in Romans 10, 14, how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? Maybe there's some way we could go to them. What does the Bible tell us our outward mission is? I've taken three passages of scripture that might shed some light on that mission. Uh, this is hardly going to be the most thorough treatment you've ever heard. Uh, we could easily have a four, six, eight-week series on this. So I just crammed everything together. You should see the stuff I took out. So, uh, But before we get to the first scripture, Luke 10, let's pray. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our paths. Open and illuminate our minds so that we may more perfectly and purely understand your word, that our lives may be conformed to what we've understood. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Let's start with a very familiar parable that Jesus told in Luke 10, verses 29 through 37, that reminds us we are Christ's caring hands and feet to our neighbors. But he, a lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
Now, by chance, a priest was coming down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now, obviously, we could have a whole sermon, uh, maybe two, on this parable. It's one of the classic stories that Jesus tells. And there are so many details that we could go into depth about, like how shocking it was to the Jewish audience to hear the priest and the Levite condemned for caring more about probably being ritually clean and passing to the other side. But then having the Samaritan, part of the hated mixed race, be the hero, right? The story is pretty straightforward. This man is robbed, beaten, left for dead. And the people that should have stopped to help him look away, walk away. They don't help. Uh, The man who is the least likely in the Jewish audience's mind did stop and help. This man is commended by Jesus, and, and the lawyer agrees that this is, he's been the good neighbor. And it's to someone who is not an actual neighbor, right? He's an Israelite, was hurt, the Samaritan, different tribe, different neighborhood. And of course, Jesus exhorts the lawyer and everyone else listening and reading to go and do likewise. So first, I would say this parable teaches us that we should meet people's physical needs, right? We can't meet as part of the outward mission of the church and individuals. We can't meet everyone's physical needs everywhere, but where we are presented an opportunity to do so. Jesus tells us that he expects us to help however we can. Samaritan goes to great lengths. He binds his wound. He pays for overnight stay and any additional costs. That's serious care. And Christians around the world have started hospitals and participated in relief efforts. I mean, it's literally called Samaritan's Purse, uh, Franklin Graham's group. Volunteer in food pantries, run hospital ministries, uh, find hundreds of ways to care tangibly for people. And it's because when God pours his love out on you, it is natural and beautiful to then let that love spill over to others around you, particularly those in need. When we love and care for people tangibly, I believe it gives our spiritual message credibility. But we should do it whether or not we get anything out of it. Right? Because people are made in the image of God and are worthy of our love. 
Number two, this parable teaches us that we should care about our neighbors, not just our tribe. Jesus basically expands this idea of a neighbor to include anyone that we come into contact with, right? It's not just the people who live on our street, our development, our side of town. Uh, It's certainly not just the people who are the same ethnic or religious identity as we are. We should be willing to turn neighboring into a verb. I will neighbor you if I come into contact with you. I will seek to help you however I can. Right? Galatians 5.14, Paul says, The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, one of the applications for this sermon that I'm giving now is, is, is actually kind of the reverse of that idea that the neighbor needs to go out Yes, treat everyone you meet like a neighbor. But what if we started with our actual, literal neighbors? We can't actually say that we're good neighbors because we went on a mission trip to the Carolina Mountains or to the Bahamas or we served food at the Tree of Life to people we, won't, we haven't met before or won't see again. Uh, if we overlook the people that live right next door. All right, if you haven't opened your bulletin yet, you probably have. You, you notice there's a fridge magnet. It's kind of weird. We don't have fridge magnets in there very often, but you do. So pull that out. Who is my neighbor? I've included this with you. I want you to take it home. Here's what you do. Your house is in the middle. All right? And then, depending on where you live, I don't know if you live out on a farm, it might be harder, a townhouse, apartment. I don't know. How, you need to figure out. It kind of worked very easily for us. We're surrounded by a whole bunch of people. And so I have written in all the neighbors' names. I don't know all their last names. I'm still, still working on that. Um, but we're praying for them. And this is the, kind of the first step. Um, we're trying to have each one of them over for a meal Um, I've been able to play sports with a couple of them, went and played golf. Um, We're trying to put a date on the calendar with one of them to sit at their fire pit. Um, I'm not saying this to brag. I am saying this because I don't want to ask you to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. I found this very helpful um, and very easy to be intentional about our neighbors. Start with their names. That may be a weird conversation. I know we've lived next to each other for 15 years, but what's your name again? Um, I don't know. But find out everyone that lives there and start praying for them. And then look for ways to connect. Uh, These magnets are made by the North Star Church Network. They've got a book, um, The Art of Neighboring, and a website, lots of resources. They call it Literal Neighboring so that we don't get caught up in reaching people all around the county and the country, um, but ignore the literal neighbors right around us. Um, If you want to mark down a date on your calendar, September 28th is Good Neighbor Day. It's like a national, you you don't get time off, but it's not just a church thing. Um, So that might be a great time to do something, certainly a deadline to find out people's names. Just a thought. 
Uh, the second scripture that we'll look at is 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. And we'll see that beyond meeting people's physical needs and being a neighbor to them, we can bring Jesus to people. So let's read that. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This passage reminds us that we are new creations in Christ who have been reconciled to God through the saving work of Jesus. The end says that it was Jesus who committed no sin, but took on our sin and gave us his righteousness. So one of the results of this is that God then hands us this message of reconciliation. Okay, you're saved. You're forgiven. You have a new nature that yearns for spiritual things. Congratulations, you're now qualified to take that message to other people. I don't have, I don't have to go to seminary. I don't have to complete a big course. No, you're ready. Study. Verse 19 says, he entrusts us with the message of reconciliation. Does he just entrust pastors and really spiritual people? I know, you know, Paul was presenting his team. But no, Frank spent time last week in Ephesians 4 that the church leaders are called to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That means every Christian is given this work. You saw what that text called us. The text called us ambassadors. What does an ambassador do? According to one website, an ambassador is responsible for taking the pulse of the country where they're assigned, the political climate, and representing the interests of their home country. An ambassador represents the, stand, the home country's standpoint on policy and all issues related to its interests. At all times, an ambassador must be a role model and exhibit behavior befitting of a national diplomat. In other words, ambassadors are servants and representatives of the government in a foreign land. They're not free to set their own agenda, develop their own message, or act however they want. I mean, how applicable to us we are God's ambassadors. We're his representatives bringing his message to those who don't know him. God makes his appeal through us. We don't make up the new message, something that we came up with. We study scripture to accurately pass it on. So let's take a couple verses. I've got them in your Sermon outline, 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Put that together with Paul's admonition in 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Put those together. You have a great reminder that we need to be ready to have conversations about spiritual things, about Jesus and the gospel. You don't have to be an amazing evangelist or theologian, but prepare, maybe think through what you'd say. This doesn't happen very often, but uh, I remember on a commuter bus, I, was, I flew into Logan Airport in Boston, and I had to take a bus up to Portsmouth, New Hampshire to be picked up for vacation. And it's about an hour bus ride. I get on, sit down. I, I sort of start engaging this young man across the aisle. Uh, we just exchange pleasantries, backgrounds, whatever. But then he turns and does something on his phone or something, and so I just kind of take that as my cue to shut up and get my book out. And I remember the book I was reading. It's called Things They Didn't Teach Me in Seminary. So I just start reading, pass the time, an hour goes pretty quickly. We are literally pulling up to the bus stop in Portsmouth when I feel this tap on my shoulder. And the guy says, hey, like, are you a priest or something? You're seminary, like you're some kind of religious leader, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm a pastor. And I don't remember exactly how he said it, but hey, I, I grew up going to church, I'm Catholic, but I haven't gone a long time. Am, am I good? It was essentially what he, like, it's the closest I've ever had to a what must I do to be saved out of the blue. And so I told you, I have like 60 seconds to get something out. And there's a lot of people sitting around us pretending not to be listening. So now I have this kind of audience where I have to just like spit out. And so I gave just like the quickest gospel presentation I could just come up with. So, uh, yeah, we're all created in the image of God, but we all sin and we fall away from God and God can't be around us uh, and it separates us because he's holy, but he bridges the gap through Jesus who died on the cross and you can follow Jesus and spend eternity in heaven. <sighs> Probably didn't that fast, but... And then we got there and Cass waiting for me. And uh, luckily, I had another book in my bag called Setting Our Sights on heaven by our friend Paul Wolf. And I said, here, take this. Just read that. So always have a book, good book, or a Bible in your bag. You'll be good. But uh, gosh, you can have great conversations with strangers in coffee shops and on the golf course, uh, airplanes, at parties. You, you don't know where those things are going to happen. I used to sort of, uh, you know, just put, if I was working on a sermon or something, I'd kind of slide it aside because I didn't want people like, like my Bible or my commentary. But then I'm like, that might really prompt a great spiritual conversation. So now you have no idea how these spiritual, how much spiritual fruit comes out of these things. But the cool thing is you're not responsible for the results, right? Just to be faithful, to speak, and to be ready. Uh, the third scripture I want to look at 
shows us that we are called to bring well, so we've looked at the, the fact that we bring Jesus to people. This, this Mark 2, 1 through 5 says we can bring people to Jesus. Um, when he, Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this, sermon, this uh, passage is going to be preached in depth on September 23rd. So come back, or 20, 22nd, during our Mark sermon series. I looked it up. So come back for more details. But essentially, you know the story, hopefully. Uh, the paralyzed guy needs to get to Jesus, but he can't. But he's got good friends who take him up on the roof, right? And they dig out, and then they lower him down. And Jesus doesn't mind the interruption, right? He stops whatever he's saying and says, your sins are forgiven. We should see ourselves as that guy's friend. We're surrounded by people that need to get to Jesus, but don't know how or don't know that they need it. So we should find a way to bring them to Jesus. Maybe that's bringing them to church. Maybe that's pointing them towards spiritual resources. I remember when I was doing uh, youth ministry, a girl in the youth group called to, sit to say that a friend of hers named Colin really needed to talk to me about uh, spiritual things and God, and he was depressed, and she had talked to him, but he sort of shot her down and just needed a new person. And so I got to talk to Colin for a couple hours one afternoon, and uh, I, I don't know how much of an impression that made on him, and I'm certainly not saying that I'm Jesus, but what, what Aaron did was she knew her friend's spiritual need. And like the paralytic's friend, she brought him to where he could hear more. So, I'm going to move into ideas for as you're going. So the easiest application for this kind of sermon is to remind people that, hey, some of you might be called to foreign missions. In fact, our denomination has challenged churches to think about how we can send 1% of our congregation on the mission field. If every church in the PCA did that, they're estimating like 2,800 new missionaries. And MTW would be rocking. That'd be so great. And I saw one church that said, okay, for us to do that, let's challenge our people to do this. 10% of our congregation go on short-term missions every year. And 100% of our people support missions through giving and prayer. And I love that because it's a reminder that most full-time missionaries started by supporting others and going on shorter-term missionaries and then feeling called. So if you want to become a missionary, we, we just need two of you, two and a half of you, I don't that might be awesome. That would be fantastic. Let us know if you want to pursue that. 
But I like the idea that we can be faithful as we go. As you are going with wherever you're called to, whatever your vocation is, wherever you find yourself, whether you're a teacher, contractor, salesperson, housewife, whatever. I don't want to let anybody off the hook. If you feel called to foreign missions, pursue that call. But I think most of us are called here and called to specific works that we are equipped for. But that doesn't mean the rest of us get to pursue our own things, right? We're still called to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, for years, I've heard people in our church say something to the effect of, we need more outreach. And I, I don't think anyone would disagree that, with the idea that a healthy gospel church should be doing as much outreach as they can. But I like to clarify what outreach means because sometimes we're not real specific in what we mean. You could mean one of sort of three general areas. The first one would be mercy ministry. And we actually do a lot of that, whether it's uh, we've done the backpack buddies, we give the Christmas gifts to children around the world through Operation Christmas Child, um, serve meals at the Tree of Life, um, blessing bags for the homeless. There's a whole bunch of ways you can get involved in that. Number two would be evangelism, just straight out sharing the gospel to win people to Christ, whether or not they come to church. And then number three would be, I didn't have a great title for it, but promotion. It's in the best sense of the word. It's spreading the word that uh, letting people know the church exists. We're here. We would love for you to come and minister to us, with us. Um, so those three things as we think through outreach, like they can be separate, a, uh, some project we put together can just fulfill one of them, or they can overlap, right? You can have an evangelistic conversation where you also invite someone to church uh, and vice versa, right? You can have a mercy ministry where you also share the gospel and invite people into the church. So there's, there's overlap there. And if you didn't notice, those three things correspond to my three points of my sermon, right? Mercy ministry is those physical needs of the first point that the Good Samaritan represents. Evangelism is the second point, bringing Jesus to people. And spreading the word about the church is the third part, bringing people to Jesus. We should do all those things, depending on what the situation calls for, how we're gifted, what opportunities we have. As the pastor in charge of outreach, I have intentionally tried to set up outreach events that we could do together. Remember last week, Frank talked about there's, in, in the church, we have to discern what we can do together corporately and what we are called to do individually. So I've tried to set up some events. You know, we've, we've passed out invitation flyers to homes for, uh, for the sunrise service, for Easter. We've Christmas caroled and invited people that we sang to 
to Christmas Eve. We've marched in the town parade and handed out candy and Bibles and invitations. We've uh, had a booth at a community fair. Uh, we've, we've tried to emphasize we had March as the have your neighbors over for a meal. And I'm open to other things that might work. Uh, if you want to participate in sort of walking up to strangers, hardcore evangelism, let me know. We'll go over to the outlet mall food court and we'll just sit and wait for talk to somebody. I've, I've done that a couple times, had some good conversations, had some really wide-eyed people scared what I was trying to sell them. But I would love to do that with you. But what I'd really like to encourage you to find ways to engage the unchurched that are natural to your life. Okay, Frank mentioned last week, like, we don't want to just add all these things. We want you to think how you can kind of add this in. I mean, we just got all the sports schedules and practices and, oh, man, we're gearing up for the fall. And I'm sure you're like that, too. There's a lot going on. But I would say that outreach usually doesn't happen if you're not intentional. Sometimes it comes out of the blue, it comes to you. But I think a lot more, we have to figure out where we can fit it in and how we can just kind of shape the things we're already doing. So parents, I want you to think about how the activities that your kids are doing, sports, school, extracurricular activities, how you can participate. Maybe you coach, maybe you just sit and watch and engage the other parents. We've had some great conversations that way. Um, and because you, you have something in common with the unchurched. Sometimes that's the hardest thing is finding something in common. You already have that, and you can build on that. It's a great way to make friends and naturally invite them to events and to church. Students, many of you are surrounded by so many unchurched and unbelievers in your classes. You have a better chance to influence a huge number of people than most adults do. I remember realizing in high school that when Jesus talked about salt and light, he meant me. He meant like teens too. Get a vision for that to invite people to youth group and to share your faith with them. One of the things that I've seen I think can be real effective is to figure out ways to use your hobbies, the things that you already do. Find a way to connect with the unchurched through that, all right? I mean, we got a lot of board gamers here, and we get together and we play hours of board games, and that's great. There's a place for that. But you, you know that there's a Leesburg board gaming group, an Ashburn board gaming group. There's all kinds of them. And then, or you could just show up to Huzzah Hobbies. Where's Eli? So he's, you know, he's done that. And you can play games and have great conversations. Um, I remember I used to be part of a church softball league, uh, the first church I worked at. And I was like, Let, why don't we just join the regular softball league so we can just, like, meet? They're probably nicer, too. They weren't storming the mound like we were. Um, you know, I, I've been invited to play basketball at Methodist churches and stuff. And I'm like, no, I want to go play at Idaly where the unbelievers are so that I can engage them in between games and try to get to know them. Uh, there's lots of them. Man, golf, you got four hours, some of you, um, 
to engage people. Uh, if you play tennis, you can join a tennis ladder. Think about your hobbies. Um, have you heard of the website meetup.com? Not a dating site. It is a uh, site where you go on and whatever you're into, there's probably a group that's meeting, all right? If you're like into hiking, biking, poetry, like I've seen a whole bunch. I mean, there's, there's some weird stuff on there, so be careful. But I think it'd be a great way if you just don't have anybody that you know around you that does your hobby, man, go join one of those and get to know people. Um, the trick, of course, is making these gospel-oriented um, yeah, I mean, enjoy it, do it. That's what you enjoy. I mean, when I'm playing basketball, I'm trying hard, even though I'm like one of the two or three worst guys on the court. But in between, I'm trying to engage people and, and use those conversations to at least be pre-evangelism and start talking about spiritual things. Um, another area is at work. Befriend and pray for your coworkers. Um, I don't know what your uh, atmosphere is at your work. I mean, I've worked for churches pretty much my whole adult life, so I'm not the guy to ask specifically what the rules and what the etiquette is. But I know people like Steve Garnier and James Murphy have witnessed two people at work, and they've come to faith in Christ. At the very least, not to put off work or when you're supposed to be doing it, but you can Start taking an interest in your coworkers, right? Be their friends through the ups and downs of life. Pray for them. You may be the only Christian in their life. And again, uh, hospitality is such a beautiful way to build a bridge between an unbeliever's world to spiritual things, to the kingdom. And so I know hospitality can be very intimidating. But you know what? You can also think of it, well, we're already going to make dinner and eat. Let's just double the recipe and invite somebody over. It can be that simple. Uh, one author, Joe Thorne, in his book, The Life of the Church, lists four ways to participate with the unchurched. Seasonally, so things like festivals, parades, Christmas. Uh, socially, recreationally, and vocationally. So a lot of those similar ideas that I hit. And listen, we've got people doing great outreaches, even if we don't hear about it all the time. I mean, I know one family in Ashburn that has had, like, all their neighbors over. I know that there are women who have ministries of visiting and reading Bible stories and loving the residents of the senior center and the nursing home. There's a couple that uses their hikes as ways to invest in people and share Jesus there's a woman who volunteers as a coordinator for the Tree of Life and is there all the time investing in the poor. Uh, one of our teens, every time I'm at youth group, she's brought a new friend. It's great to see. Uh, monthly, when I send out that prayer request email, I get these prayer requests that say, hey, I'm praying for this, this, and this person, either in their, that they work with or in their neighborhood. I'm looking for ways to connect with them. It's fantastic. There's, I'm sure there's dozens more that I'm not aware of. Um, we celebrate and are so thankful for all the things that the Lord is doing through those efforts. And ultimately, we call outreach ministry incarnational ministry. 
right? In the flesh. You've got to go in the flesh, right? Jesus modeled this, became flesh and dwelt among us, John's gospel says. He could have stayed in heaven where he reigned in glory and everything was awesome and perfect, but he was obedient to the Father's plan to come to earth, to live a perfect life, to die on a cross to save us. He became flesh. He modeled that incarnational ministry for us. And so that we know if we want to reach most people, we must go and be among them. We can't stay huddled in church in the comfort of our homes and in the comfort of our existing relationships. We have to move towards uncertainty, maybe difficulty, maybe pain. These things aren't always smooth. For sure, we could tell a lot of stories, I'm sure, of being rejected or challenged or yelled at. But we need to move out of our comfort zones, love people, and be willing to share Christ physically, tangibly, and verbally. And the amazing thing is Jesus goes with us, right? The Holy Spirit works through us. We need to remind ourselves we are never alone. It feels lonely sometimes. But the Holy Spirit is going to do the heavy lifting in evangelism and outreach, right? When we're intentional to find ways to spend time with people, the Holy Spirit is the one who works salvation in their hearts. It's not all on us. He calls us to participate, to go out where it's not safe, where it's uncomfortable, and he'll be there with us. Jesus said, I am with you always, and the Father will send you another helper to be with you forever. When people meet us, they don't know it, but we've got the Trinity with us, man. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are with us, strengthening and upholding us. We have a beautiful vision, too. Think uh, from the song we just sang, O Church, Arise. Saints of old line the way, retelling triumphs of his grace. We hear their calls and hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory. Think of the people we will meet who had Christ shared with them, who the Holy Spirit used those encounters to save them. Their eternal destiny was fixed after those encounters. I want to be part of those. And all those who want to be Jesus' hands and feet in the world and who want to connect people with Jesus said, amen. Let's close in prayer. Just pray quietly, and then I will close us. Lord God, thank you that you come to us, that Jesus came bringing redemption, healing, forgiveness of our sins, salvation. And thank you that you have called us, your people, into fellowship. 
called into relationship with you and then into community with one another. And Lord, may we always love one another that they will know we are Christians by our love. But may we never just keep that love for those we already know, those who are, we are comfortable with, those who are in the church. Lord, send us out. Let our worship and our fellowship and our study of your word compel us to go out, to be your hands and feet in the world, to meet physical, tangible needs, but to also form relationships, love people, tell them the gospel, tell them the bad news of our sin and our separation in our natural state that we're at enmity with you, but the good news that you break through that. And we pray your Holy Spirit work as we do that, as we know he will. God, give us wisdom, give us courage, and give us a vision for that. In Jesus' name, amen.